0: are tuned to your community radio station KVMR FM Nevada City KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m., Thursday, February 9th. I'm Joyce Miller and this is the KVMR Evening News. In honor of Black History Month, KVMR intern news producer Julia Jem recognizes the tragic, poignant, and surprising saga of Mary Dorsey, an African-American pioneer of Nevada County. Emergency room care is collapsing in our state, and the California report finds that the Central Valley is ground zero for the crisis. We've got the weather forecast and an essay by Molly Fisk.
1: This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. In Fresno County, an emergency hospital declaration has just been lifted, despite area hospitals still dealing with an overcrowding crisis. KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports.
2: The Fresno County Board of Supervisors agreed. Local hospitals are in trouble.
3: Underlying this short-term state of emergency, there's actually a bigger crisis.
2: Supervisor Steve Brandau highlighted the financial burden facing hospitals in the Central Valley, which serve a higher rate of government-funded medi and Medicare patients.
3: Our hospitals are not getting reimbursed at the rate that allows them to be sustainable.
2: Higher costs for staffing and supplies have made matters worse. The declaration was announced in January, shortly after Madera Community Hospital closed and forced Fresno's hospitals to absorb those patients. It was also during a surge in respiratory illnesses that severely reduced bed capacity.
4: But we do have this crisis that's continuing. I kind of feel like we're a pot of water boiling and every once in a while we boil over.
2: Dr. Danielle Campaign is the ER chief at Community Regional Medical Center, Fresno's only level one trauma center and the only one between L.A. and Sacramento. The emergency declaration was meant to get the attention of state and federal agencies, but so far, no additional resources for aid. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno.
1: Madera Community Hospital is one of the many facing financial hardships across the state. In fact, half of California's hospitals lose money every day. And experts say more are likely to close. KQED health correspondent Leslie McClurg explains why. The pandemic created the perfect storm to bankrupt
3: hospitals. In the beginning, facilities scrambled to build specialized COVID units. Very sick patients stayed much longer than usual. During surges, a lot of hospitals depended on travel nurses who can charge $300 an hour. It all added up. The net impact of that was that California's hospitals during the two years of the pandemic at its peak lost $20 billion. Carmela Coyle is the president and CEO of the California Hospital Association. The federal government provided $8 billion in relief, but that has left California hospitals with $12 billion in losses. Then you add inflation. Labor costs have increased by 19%. Pharmaceutical costs are up 40%. The cost of that is just exorbitant. And finally, there's Medi-Cal reimbursements. One out of three Californians are on Medi-Cal, meaning the state covers their medical expenses because they're low income. But the state only reimburses 74 cents on every dollar of cost. If the state isn't paying its fair share of those costs, it creates losses for the hospital. The situation is precarious in Imperial County, Tulare County, Hollister in the Central Coast region, and Eureka up north.
1: When will this implode? Like, it's not a matter of if, but like, like when will this implode?
3: Nicole Braxley was an ER doctor in Sacramento during the pandemic. She says acute care in hospitals is dire. Patients all across the state and the country are waiting six, eight, sometimes 24 hours for care in the emergency room.
1: There is no bed with which to see the patient. And all I want to do is see the patient.
3: That's why some facilities are training doctors to treat patients in the lobby.
1: We call it vertical care. You know, we say if a patient can stay vertical and they don't need to be horizontal on a bed, they don't get a bed. You know, you sit in a chair.
3: Those patients can still receive blood tests, EKGs, and even an IV in the waiting room.
5: We safety pin the IV bag to the wall. We put up little coat hooks.
3: She says lobby medicine is miserable for both patients and doctors, but it's often the only option. The California Hospital Association is asking the governor for $1.5 billion in immediate relief. And they are lobbying for an increase in Medi-Cal reimbursements over time. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg.
2: Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. Paint Care, now with 846 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better. On the web at schmidtfutures.com.
1: More than 36 million trees died in California last year. That's an almost 300% increase from the year before. KQED science reporter Danielle Venton has more. Each
2: year, Forest Service surveyors fly a Cessna a thousand feet above the ground looking for dying trees. This year, fir trees were especially hard hit. The amount of fir mortality is by far the most we've ever recorded. Jeffrey Moore manages the annual aerial survey in California and says it's due to too many small trees, owing to decades of suppressing natural fires and the recent drought. So even in a good year, they're not particularly healthy and then We've had this three years of exceptional drought, so that made a bad situation, really bad. The central Sierra Nevada is the hardest-hit region. Dead trees are a severe fire risk. For the California Report, I'm Danielle Venton.
1: The fate of the Western Joshua tree is still up in the air after the State Fish and Game Commission delayed a decision on whether it should be listed as threatened under California's Endangered Species Act. This comes after a bill was introduced in Sacramento this week that would provide protections to the native desert plant. The Western Joshua Tree Conservation Act would prohibit anyone from importing, exporting, or removing the tree without a permit from the state.
2: The
3: Western Joshua Tree is iconic. It deserves special consideration through its own law. That seems very fitting to me.
1: That was Department of Fish and Wildlife Director Chuck Bonham speaking during a meeting yesterday. Big news out of the San Diego Zoo. One of the zoo's tiniest residents has broken a Guinness World Record. Pat, the Pacific pocket mouse, took home the title for the longest living mouse in human care at the ripe age of nine years, 209 days. This tiny guy and his mouse friends can weigh as much as three pennies, and they get their name from the cheek pouches they use to carry food and nesting materials, not because they're so tiny they can fit in your pocket if that's what you were thinking. Pat's record-breaking accomplishment comes on the heels of a successful breeding season, according to the San Diego Zoo Alliance, which helped produce 117 pups that will be reintroduced into native habitats in Southern California this spring. What a time to be a Pacific pocket mouse. And that's the California Report for Thursday, February 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
0: Turning to your regional weather forecast, mostly clear and sunny with a slight chance of light precipitation Friday into Saturday that could impact mountain travel. In Nevada City and Grass Valley, this evening will be clear with a low of 40 Friday will be sunny and breezy with a high near 56. Friday night, mostly cloudy with a slight chance of showers, possible patchy fog, and a low around 34. Partly cloudy tonight in Truckee and Lake Tahoe with a low around 23. Friday will be sunny with a high near 44 and wind gusts of up to 25 miles per hour. Friday night, a slight chance of snow showers, mainly after 10, and a low of 21 new snow accumulation of two inches is possible. Tonight in Sacramento and Woodland, patchy fog and a low around 39. Friday, some morning fog, then mostly sunny with a high near 60. Friday night, partly cloudy with a low around 40. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. As part of KVMR's recognition of Black History Month, KVMR's Julia Jem next recounts the story of Nevada County pioneer Mary Dorsey, with assistance from historian Linda Jack of the Nevada County Historical Society.
5: February is Black History Month, and the KVMR News Department is looking to share stories about the African-American pioneers of Nevada County. I'm Julia Jem. Last week, I and two of my colleagues took a trip to the Searles Historical Library in Nevada City. There, we read the Nevada County Historical Society's January 2023 Bulletin. I found it to tell an incredibly important story, and I've chosen to synopsize it for our listeners. I spoke with its author, historian Linda Jack, and she was kind enough to offer additional insight throughout my retelling of her article. You'll hear her voice in addition to mine as I recount the events outlined in the Bulletin. According to the Bulletin, Nevada County was once home to a significant community of African-Americans. Some were brought to the goldfields as slaves by enslavers from southern states, some were escaped slaves, and some came as free people. They lived in Grass Valley, Nevada City, and in the smaller mining camps such as North Bloomfield, Rough and Ready, and French Corral. They worked as miners, laborers, shopkeepers, musicians, farmers, teachers, and clergymen. They built churches and schools, bought property, founded businesses, educated their children, and fought for civil rights. One such pioneer was Mary Ann Dorsey. In the beginning of the 19th century, a drop in the productivity of tobacco occurred in Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, while cotton cultivation skyrocketed following the invention of the cotton gin and the availability of newly seized indigenous land. This prompted a prominent shift in America's slave-based economy, with the price of slaves rising to heights never before seen. To meet the demand, hundreds of thousands of enslaved people were sold into the Deep South, and Virginia's profits from slave sales alone exceeded previous revenue from tobacco. During this time, slave trading became an increasingly widespread practice, and people, including young women like Mary, were sold and dispersed throughout the country. When Mary was sold out of Virginia into Livingston County, Missouri, she was already the mother of two enslaved sons, Bill and Tom. She was enslaved to a trader, Lewis Morrison Best, who was known locally as, quote, harsh and brutal by nature, a cruel master, a violent and dangerous man.
6: So Missouri uh, was a slave state uh, before the Civil War, and it was composed mostly of people from Kentucky and other states that came in. There were small farms, and people were uh, essentially lived with an immediacy with their slaves, And so that made for a different sort of relationship than on larger plantations where slaves' uh, quarters could be, you know, fairly far from the main house. So, those kind of small farms, there was a level of intimacy just on day to day interactions with enslaved people and the enslavers. And that could make for sort of more perhaps compatible relationships or more stressed relationships because of the proximity. It just happened that Lewis Best, according to his own white contemporaries, was a really bad man, violent, mean, and cruel. And so anyone who was enslaved by him, and he was a traitor, so people came and went, was likely subject to very harsh conditions.
5: The discovery of gold in California prompted gold fever, which convinced many parties to relocate across the plains in search of wealth. Among those parties was Louis Best, his wife, and Mary. By October 1, 1850, they'd arrived in Nevada City, where Best purchased the Washington House, a hotel on Upper Main Street. Mary is thought to have worked at the hotel while also doing laundry for businessmen in the city. She gave birth to a son, Benjamin, on December seventeenth. His physical features implied that he was likely Best's child. Most enslaved women and girls experienced some form of sexual harassment or rape from a male authority figure, with prolonged sexual abuse being common not only on large plantations, but also in small towns and rural farms. In Mary's case, the abuse was most certainly prolonged, given that again in 1853 she would bear him another child, this time a daughter, Elizabeth.
6: This is a an interesting topic because there were social forces at play here that we might not think that much about. On a large plantation, an enslaver could have a relationship, a forced sexual relationship with a slave, and the mistress of the house might not have to deal with that on a daily basis. On the other hand, sometimes it was very contentious. They could be extremely violent, a retribution against the woman, although she had no choice in the matter. On the other hand, in other situations, the mistress could choose to look the other way and just... Pretend that she didn't know, even though the children may have resembled her husband. And then there probably were conditions in which a wife might be grateful that that attention was not being brought to her. Uh, But surely the risks were high for Mary because she had already seen two of her children left behind. So just the threat to separate her from her children was probably enough for most women, just that they had to endure their situation, no matter how unpleasant or violent.
5: By autumn of 1852, Best had decided that he wanted to return to Missouri, threatening to take Mary, Benjamin, and Elizabeth back into slavery. Mary found herself in a desperate need of a survival strategy. She chose to ask several of her laundry customers for assistance in raising the funds to buy her own and her children's freedom. Or, alternatively, she asked that her customers buy her and her children outright. I'm going to read a quote from Niles Searles. It was written in a letter to his cousin Cornelia following Mary's visit to his home on November 8, 1852. I considered leaving it out of this piece because it's admittedly uncomfortable to read, but after speaking with Linda, I found it important and valuable to include. Searles wrote the following, Received a call this morning from our colored washerwoman. Her master is about to return to the States, and she wishes us to raise money to purchase her freedom or to have a company of us buy her. Think I will take two shares. Female stock is above par in this country. Price $800. Two juvenile darkies thrown in. Fortunately, several sympathetic customers found themselves moved by Mary's desperation, and her price was met. Best sold his hotel to B.H. Collier and promptly returned to Missouri with his white family. Finally, Mary, Benjamin, and Elizabeth were free. For some Californians, it's difficult to acknowledge that slavery's history is also our history. But stories like Mary's remind us that hard history is not hopeless history. Here's Linda Jack and her thoughts on this hard history.
6: In recent years, the topic of slavery has become so politically contentious. Um, Pundits, educators, parents, members of the public— all have weighed in on the value of learning about slavery, whether we should learn about it at all, whether we can learn parts that are offensive or make people feel bad, or whether we should only focus on the triumphal parts of it, the Emancipation Proclamation, escape slaves like Harriet Tubman. There are plenty of heroes and heroines who got out of slavery, Frederick Douglass You know, should we focus on those people and their triumphs or talk about the average person? But certainly of the 4 million people that were enslaved uh, at the end of the Civil War, a tiny percentage of them escaped. A tiny percentage of them went on to write a narrative like Frederick Douglass. My own feeling is that a story like Mary's is important because However far down she was in the sort of level of fame or fortune, she had agency. She took charge of her situation and did what she could to better her life and her children. So I think it's very important to recognize that slavery is hard history, hard to comprehend the inhumanity that defined it. It's hard to discuss the violence that sustained it. And it's hard to teach the ideology of white supremacy that justified it. And like some of our local citizens in Nevada City, it's hard to learn about those who abided it. And for us, those of us in the West, in California, we need to remember that that story is our story as well. So Mary's story shows us that you can have hard history that is also hopeful history. Her ability to control her own future and that of her children is a hopeful story. And there were thousands of those stories all throughout slavery and here in Nevada County. And as the historian Hakeem Jeffries wrote, uh, there is no greater hope to be found in American history than in African Americans' resistance
5: to slavery. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem.
0: A longer version of the Mary Dorsey story is available as a podcast at kvmr.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly
2: Fisk, observations from a working poet.
4: A poet friend in Cyprus writes to say the younger son of a family she knows that is trapped under earthquake rubble in Syria has been pulled out alive. This morning, the death toll has topped 12,000. Also alive and freed but injured is Ghanaian soccer player Christian Atsu. This I know from Reuters. I don't follow soccer, but one of my cousin's-in-law is from Ghana, so I follow his country. In Malatya, Turkey, the temperature is 21 degrees. Not enough resources, not enough helpers. People will be dying of cold. Meanwhile, the Grammys. Meanwhile, the skiing is so great at Tahoe after all this snow. Meanwhile, the State of the Union address. I have no poet friends in Congress, so no on-the-ground details for you there, but it was all televised if you weren't watching in real time. Now, there's a phrase, real time, versus what else? Unreal time? Imaginary time? Tape delayed? Tivoed? would time that's been altered to suit us. If it sounds like I'm rambling here, you are correct. My brain is up there behind my forehead trying to sift through piles of information and feeling, overstimulated and weary and guilty and also fine. As I've said before about writing and life, when something's not working, try to get more specific. My friend in Cyprus slept through the earthquake, but not its fierce aftershocks. Plates fell off shelves. Christian Atsu isn't merely a soccer player, but a winger, whatever that may be. Wingman, wingnut. It sounds kind of angelic. The pen I write with is dark blue. My coffee is cooling. I am located. In times like these, a poem by Jack Gilbert rises in my memory. Not everyone loves this poem, and I don't know if I love it either all the time, but it follows me. As usual, a poet's been able to say something I need to hear and hadn't yet found words for. It's called A Brief for the Defense, and you can see it readily on the internet. I'm gonna skip the parts about summer dawn and Bengal tigers and the small ship at anchor, the three shuttered cafes. The opening line is two sentences. Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. You get the gist. Gilbert toodles around alternating horrors and ordinary moments of happiness. Just when our brains want to split open at the intense paradox, he gives us this. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. It's a majestic line, part command, part anthem. Those repeated nesses are music and the er rhyme of furnace and world. He has named one of our tasks as humans and in his examples shown us how hard a task it is helped us to see what we're in for and know that it's not a mistake. We aren't lacking capacity if we dread this. It is truly enormous and difficult. Knowing I'm not crazy has always helped me. A reality check, even when the realities are excruciating, is better than bumbling around in confusion. If the job is facing suffering head-on and doing what we can to help others, but also being joyful when something moves us, I can learn to accept that. And thankfully, when I forget, poems remind me. Award-winning poet Molly
6: Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of downtown Nevada
0: City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for Thursday, February 9th. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Scraps Dog Bakery at Mountain Mutt's. Family owned for 18 years, providing cat and dog wellness needs, including holistic organic food, training accessories, toys, also fresh bakery, Scraps Dog Bakery at Mountain Mutts, next to B&C Hardware, Grass Valley, and Nevada County Citizens for Choice promoting reproductive justice and equitable reproductive health care access, advocacy, and education with compassionate services for women, men, and teens. Learn more at citizensforchoice.org. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Friday at 6 p.m. for a special hour-long edition of the KVMR Evening News Celebrating Women in Science.